At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Greg Peterson here, and welcome to the 288th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where three days a week we work together educating and inspiring you to become part of your food revolution. Nature doesn't waste energy, and by using these natural cycles to work in our favor, we can harvest both plants and fish. Let us teach you how. Just text GROWFISH to 33444 or visit IWANTTOGROWFISH.COM and you will receive our free webinar on how to grow your own fish-powered garden. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is connecting her community to their local farmers, motivating others in the food revolution. We're talking to Elvira DeBrigitte about a valley of farmers in California. 17 years ago, Elvira moved her family to Cape Valley, where her passionate interest in sustainable living took hold. While teaching, she explored curricula surrounding farming, environmental preservation, and nutrition, all in support of sustainable living. She is the editor of CapeValleyGrown.net and the author of Why We Farm, Farmers' Stories of Growing Our Food and Sustaining Their Businesses. She also serves on the organizing committee for the Hose Down Harvest Festival, a fundraiser for the Ecological Farming Association. Elvira holds a BA in International Relations from UC Davis, a teaching credential, and a Waldorf Steiner teaching certificate. She lives in Rumsey, California with her husband and three children. Welcome to the show today, Elvira. Thanks for having me, Greg. Absolutely. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yeah, it was kind of a twisted path, for sure. I was, you know, thinking that I was going to be a Waldorf teacher, mm-hmm. and I was had my little tribe of people, and we really wanted to do an intentional community somewhere in the country and have a healing retreat and yeah it was a great dream and my partner at the time we looked for property and we were kind of like spearheading that effort in the group and so after looking in many different areas we finally we actually bought this piece of property sight unseen in an auction from just knowing that there was Wilbur Hot Springs nearby. That wow. was really all we knew uh-huh. about the place. <laughs> and then it took us a couple of years to move there. And and yeah, just kind of long story short, we lived in the canyon above where I am now, off the grid, and you know with spring water that we had to pipe down to our little cabin and. We did that for a couple of years and raised my first two children up there. 
And it was all in search of a healthier way of life mm-hmm. and having, yeah, water that wasn't polluted and good air. And the food part of it was really important to me, you know, when I was pregnant, you know, just trying to search out really healthy organic food. And I started to be aware of, yeah, how difficult that can be. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, um, especially 25 years ago, it mm-hmm. was a little more difficult. And so then, you know, we were getting able to get food from farmers that lived, you know, just a few miles down the road from us. And that is where I'm living now. I moved down from the canyon into the valley and am able to have a little homestead myself. And, you know, my dream has really changed, but mm-hmm. it's been, yeah, it's been a good journey. Nice. So you wrote a book called Why We Farm, Farmers' Stories of Growing Our Food and Sustaining Their Business. Tell okay. me about that. What's the, what was the motivation behind it? It's a beautiful book. It's available on Amazon. Yeah. The motivation behind it was really just getting to know my neighbors and who are mostly farmers. And I was actually working as a homeschool parent and teacher and so got to know these people pretty well. And in seeing their day-to-day life, just had so many questions, started to realize that, yeah, the general public, while we have, you know, these slogans like know your farmer and eat local, but there's so much that people don't realize about that lifestyle and how challenging it can be on the business side of things. That's mostly what my book focuses on is Mm -hmm. more of how they, yeah, what their business models are. Got it. So you started off with Mana's Ranch? Um, I didn't start there, but I could tell you about Mana's Ranch. All right, cool. <laughs> yeah, they are definitely kind of old-timers that have been in the Valley for quite a while. In 1979, they moved to Esparto. And, yeah, it's just a really great couple who are just dedicated to farming as a lifestyle, really, mm-hmm. the way they explained mm-hmm. it to me. that it's, Yeah, and there's a little quote in there about how their friends, you know, are going skiing or boating in the summer, and they don't understand why Fred and Alice, you know, can't come with them. <laughs> and Fred and Alice are like, no, we love our life of farming. Right. And they have peaches and apricots, and then they also started a meat market because um, they used to have cattle of their own. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it's really their lifestyle. Actually, Heidi and I live on the urban farm here in Phoenix. It's right in the middle of the city, so it's nothing rural by any means. Mm. And it's a third of an acre. And mostly we like staying here and, you know, working with the chickens and tending our gardens and not going very far away. So it sounds to me like it's really a lifestyle they've chosen. Yeah, and I found that as a common thread in the interviews that I did, that the people who chose this lifestyle, you know, at first I was thinking, wow, these people are working so hard, you Mm -hmm. know, such long hours, and how do they have the stamina? But, you know, I came to see that it was, yeah, one, a lifestyle, and then also just, I think, being out there and working you know, on their land just feeds them internally in a way that 
keeps the energy going and yeah, it's just a healthy lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. I, I notice you have a, a permaculture homestead that you featured in your book as well. Tell us about that. That's right. Spreadwing. Spreadwing Farm is a relatively new farm in this valley. And my friend Kathy had came here as an entomologist. Mm, and interesting. Yeah. And then she decided that she would rather work with plants. And she started out just um, being a farm worker for another local farm here. And then slowly you know, developed into um, her partner and, and she bought this land and the, the, yeah, they're one of the few really permaculture models here in the valley and really unique in the way that they are planting without really a tractor. They were doing it, you know, with one of those walk behind pillars, Uh you know, just starting out just kind of like with a big garden model and you know now they're getting more into having more a few row crops to help sustain them through the summer but they have a big orchard and my chapter goes into more of like some of the permaculture methods that they use Mm -hmm. Um, yeah nice so what surprised you most about your conversations with the farmers in the book hmm i guess what surprised me most was that the risk in farming seemed not to be so much like the weather and these acts of God that are always present, for right. sure, mm-hmm. but that these small farmers were really facing all these same risks that small businesses face, and just, you know, that in addition to being good farmers, they also have to be good, you know, managers of people and stay on top of markets and be marketers of their products mm-hmm. and they have to be mechanics so they can fix yeah. their things. So it's just how involved the work was was a bit of a surprise to me. Yeah, well, you know, running my own business, which I've done for the past 40 years, uh, you know, you kind of become the chief cook and bottle washer and everything in between. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, so what I'd like for you to do is think about the different farms and people that you talked to and tell us about one that was most epic, most striking, one that really moved you. Hmm. There's quite a few. So I'm looking at my table of contents thinking, which one should I choose? Mm -hmm. I guess the one that really stands out is Viraditas Farm. And this is Sally Fox's She's the owner of the farm, uh-huh. and she is an organic cotton plant breeder. Wow. And, yeah, when I spoke with her, when I had the interview, she said right away, and I opened my chapter with what she said, that she's not a real farmer, she said. <laughs> and she came into it in, in a kind of a begrudging way that she was a plant breeder because of her love of textiles and also her experience early on of meeting someone who their whole life they were handicapped because of working with dyes without Mm. having gloves on and her brain was affected with neurotoxicity yeah so she was really affected by that and 
And she was able to breed this cotton that has its own color. So she has a variety of colors that are different shades. Wow, really? Browns and greens and peach colors. And so it's not only organic, but it's colored cotton. Mm-hmm. And, um, and her story is one of single-handedly this person just creating a whole other market that didn't exist before and a lot of trial and tribulations. And finally, you know, she does farm also in order to support her <laughs> hobby right. you know, and her love. Yeah. And so... Yeah, it's a really touching story, and I learned so much about all the process of how, you know, a non-GMO plant breeder works, and the there's all, all the trials of that aspect of it, mm-hmm. too, with modern research and patenting processes. Right. So. Wow. Cool. So... You live in Capay Valley, and what's the typical growing season there, and what are you growing? Yeah, well, Capay Valley is, I guess, one of the great things about it is that you can grow year-round. Oh, nice. Um, It has a really intense growing season. I mean, you know, we have quite a few days over 100 Mm -hmm. degrees during the summer, and then we can get some frost in the winter. And my husband and I grow a lot of different things. We have olives that we grow commercially. We oh, have wow. just over Yeah, we have just over an acre of olives that are twelve years old now. Mm-hmm. So this year looks like it's gonna be a good harvest, but we've definitely had, you know, some small yields so far that were different it's like yeah, an artisanal craft of getting this olive oil hand-picked and pressed. Right. Um, yeah, it's fun. So are you are you pressing it yourself? No, a press is a really expensive oh, yeah. you know, thing to have. So we were taking it out of the valley for a while, for a couple of years, and then more recently the tribe in our area has built this beautiful facility for olive pressing, milling, mm-hmm. I guess I should say. Right. <laughs> and, and so we've been able to take it there. Excellent. Excellent. And, and Cape Valley is inland from San Francisco, it looks like. Right. It is. And it's just east of Napa Valley. Oh, right. Perfect. Perfect. And it gets up over 100 there. It does. It has really similar weather pattern to the Central Valley and Sacramento, Redding area. And Phoenix, Arizona. Mm, <laughs> and Phoenix, yeah. Arizona. It's, that's what it's like here. Uh, we can, grow, we can right. grow all year round and we can grow olives. And yeah, wow. Cool. So other than olives, what else are you growing? We have, um, you know, a big like homesteading garden mm-hmm. where, you know, we're always rotating different things. Right now it's a lot of tomatoes and cucumbers and melons and yeah. basil. And then we try some unique things, sweet potatoes. Oh, and then my husband, who he used to be an organic gardener in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And so he's, you know, even though he works now another full-time job, but this is, you know, just kind of our hobby, our lifestyle, like right. we were saying before. Yeah, exactly. 
Uh, but he also has a little tropical greenhouse, which is really fun. Oh, so we like nice. to impress people when they come over with our bananas and yep. mangoes are almost ripe. So. <laughs> oh, wow. Cool. Have you grown yeah. any papayas? I've tried a few times, and I really want to try again, but I yeah. haven't had any luck so far. Yeah, I, so I tried tropicals for the first time two years ago here at the Urban Farm. And, you know, it freezes sometimes in the winter here, so, you know, that takes them out. Uh, but it hasn't for the last couple of years, and I have, um, in fact, I'm looking out the window at it right now. I've got a 14-foot-tall papaya wow. tree That's so exciting. Yeah, out there, and it's probably got 40 papayas on it. Ooh. Oh, yeah. We'll be eating papayas starting here in the next month or two for, you know, for the rest of the year. Oh, that's so. great. I haven't, however, gotten any mangoes yet. Uh, they're still... Yeah. So that's, that's I, mean, cool. I call it my mango bush because right. you know, it's yep. not very big. Yeah, exactly. 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 So can you tell us why Cape Valley is a good microcosm for us to look at when understanding the farming industry? Yeah, and maybe not the farming industry as like the big ag industry, mm -hmm. but for understanding small farming, there are a wide variety of models here of farming methods and business models that these farmers are using. Uh, so of course. there's a lot to learn here. And it definitely, you know, in this area followed a similar pattern through you know, the 50s, where there used to be big orchards here and dairy farm, you know, and livestock. And then that all, you know, really went into decline. And then there's been this revitalization since the late 70s. Mm -hmm. and, and so, yeah, so it has become like this little microcosm of, you know, what could happen and, and what is happening in some other areas as right. well. And, in this country with like for example the community supported agriculture movements that there were people here that were really on the forefront of that movement oh wow uh-huh kpa organic or farm fresh to you is their delivery business mm -hmm. they have been their parents started that in the early 80s and it's a remarkable business and marketing strategy that they've developed. So it seems as though there's a lot of community going on up in the Cape Valley. So what factors does that play in farming? Yeah, I think it is really interesting. Like I have this picture in my mind of, you know, farmers hanging out of the window of their trucks and talking to each other about, uh -huh. you know, the weather and the crops and there's that's definitely an important part of it all. And there's here in Cape Valley, right, some farmers that are really working together. One example is the Cape Valley Farm Shop, oh. which is, yeah, it's a really interesting way for the farmers to sell what they have as a in a community project. So it's an online farm shop, and people can go and order a box, or they can also order individual things and mm, um nice and it's all yeah it's great especially for a farmer who's like just growing almonds or just has you know honey or something like that then if they're you know marketing it with other things that other farmers are selling in the area 
think it's been a big help for people here. Yeah. So it's really a cooperative space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. I'm going to shift on you now, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. Yeah, that's a good question. Recently, I had something that, that I had to deal with, and it really, I think, came down to having too many projects going at once. And so, <laughs> yeah. I've done that before. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a common theme, especially these days in our fast-paced society. Yep. But I was, you know, working on this book, Why We Farm, and I'm also still homeschooling and working as a teacher with a homeschool charter school in California. And I had been working to organize this homeschool co-op of parents here in Cape Valley, and I just was not able to really be a good administrator with that co-op, mm. and the vision that I had for it really started to fall apart last spring. People, yeah, basically decided to just go with hiring a private teacher, and so that was really hard for me. I felt like, oh, I could have done better in that area. Uh-huh. What was, the, what was your learning from that? Yeah, well, my learning was that, you know, if you're going to have a, do a project, you have to make sure you have enough, you know, time and energy to commit to it. And also, yeah, really learning about good communication, mm-hmm. keeping communication going. And, and we, we have so far been able to kind of pull together a board of directors to keep some of the classes going as a community effort. So, But I kind of stepped aside from that and just decided that I didn't have the energy to put into it right now. Yeah. Um, well, you know, there's as we go through life, I found that as I go through life, there are things that I'm really meant to do, and I do really well. Mm-hmm. I'm reading a book right now called The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. I actually read it about eight years ago. And I'm rereading it again now because a buddy of mine is reading it. And it distinguishes areas of competence and your areas of expertise and your areas of genius. And I think as we go through life, we stumble across things that, you know what, I really shouldn't be doing that. He actually calls that our area of incompetence. And Mm -hmm. quite honestly, that was me this morning as I was trying to deal with this technology to get the recording done. That's why I had to, you know, that's why I had to. Yeah. You know, move our recording appointment today, but I just got so frustrated with the technology. It's not it's not what I do. You know, it's not what I do well. So Yeah, uh, I hope you have some help with that. Yeah, oh yeah. It sounds I, like you're good at interviewing. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I I did have some help with the technology and that's I think that's really what there is for us to do is to discover what we're you know, where our expertise at is is at and you know, what's our genius? What do we really love to do? And it sounds to me like there's pieces of this that you really love to do. Yes. Yeah, working with the kids yeah. and being able to help parents understand, you know, homeschooling and how they can integrate it into their lives. Yeah. Yay. So what do you consider your biggest success? Well, you know, maybe a lot of parents probably look to their kids as their their measure of success. I'm uh-huh. like, okay, have some good kids. <laughs> but on a more personal level, when I was 
going for my California teaching credential, it was really a challenge. It was just after the recession, mm -hmm. and there were a lot of people who were saying, I mean, there weren't any teaching jobs, and I was trying to get a job with the intern credential so that I could be you know, gaining my credential through right. the job. And it was a real challenge, but I was actually able to create a job for myself with offering these classes to independent study students several oh, days a week. Um, nice. And that was, yeah, that was a big success of mine to feel at the end of the year, like, yay, I got this California teaching credential and I didn't have to, like, you know, totally change my life around and go work in a public school, which I wouldn't right. have wanted to do. And I hear that it can be challenging. Yeah, some people are good at it. Yeah, yeah. So what drives you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, it's funny, I have this conversation kind of frequently with my 21-year-old son who is, you know, really asking a lot of questions. And he's always asking, like, what's the purpose of this life? You know, it doesn't really seem to be going <laughs> anywhere for a lot of people. And um, I don't know, I think my answer, what really drives me is, you know, trying to be a more evolved person, trying to, yeah, learn what I can in this life so that I won't have to repeat these lessons <laughs> again. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Mm. Yeah, there's a book that I just got a hold of recently, and it's called The Lentil Underground. Have you heard of it? I haven't. Yeah, it was interesting. When I was doing research for my own book, I found out about this book that um, really takes a look at a group of farmers in Montana who are... Um, you know, in order to build up their soil and not be dependent on, you know, these, this big ag model of fertilizers and pesticides, they are growing lentils organically. Mm. And, yeah, it's just a crop that works well there and helps them, like I said, to break out of the mold. And yeah. it was a really interesting story. Well, and lentils, will, they're, they're legumes, so they're going to help build the soil. Right, exactly. And yeah. that soil just really needed it. And yeah, and it was just, you know, people who you don't think of, you know, there's like really conservative farmers in Montana, but they, you know, came to some realizations that they needed to make a change. And yeah. so I like it for the social impact. Yeah, know. cool. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I think what I've learned from writing this book is that we really do need to support local farmers and not just in a casual way or when it's convenient mm -hmm. because if we don't have those small local farmers then we're dependent on this whole other ag system that is you know really not healthy and not going to give us the choices that we want to see in our diet right so yeah my advice is supporting your local farmer and also really supporting small locally owned groceries mm, and co-ops yeah. because they are the ones who also really help the farmers and give us those choices. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Elvira. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, there's a website for the book, and it is whywefarmkpay.com. And kpay is spelled with a C, mm-hmm. C-A-P-A-Y. Perfect. And yeah, I have contact information there. Perfect. Perfect. And you can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash why we farm. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Nature doesn't waste energy, and by using these natural cycles to work in our favor, we can harvest both plants and fish. Let us teach you how. Just text GROWFISH to 33444 or visit IWANTTOGROWFISH.COM and you will receive our free webinar on how to grow your own fish-powered garden. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.